False prophets here, false prophets there, false prophets everywhere. Today, on The Backdrop. Welcome to The Backdrop. I'm Curtis, and yes, we are dealing with Chapter 23 of Jeremiah this week with its focus on false prophets, along with a few odds and ends that don't directly deal with false prophets thrown in along the way. From the beginning of Chapter 23, God is railing against the false prophets in Judah who have allowed the flock under their care to be scattered, which in this context is a reference to exile. They have been scattered all the way to Babylon. We've touched on before how often in Jeremiah the image of an undoing of creation shows up as a way of describing the judgment and exile that are coming to the people. Well, in these verses, there's actually an interesting reversal of that reversal. I mean, if there's anything more Jeremiah than a reversal of a reversal of an image representing Israel, then I don't know what it is. But when God says that a new shepherd is coming who will truly tend to the flock, in verse 3 it says, I'll return them to their dwelling place, and they will be fruitful and become many. Be fruitful and become many, or multiply. It's the same word spoken to Adam and Eve and to Noah. It's a picture of how, through Jesus, we will return to the same purpose that God has had for humans since the very beginning, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the whole earth with the goodness of God. Jumping forward then to verse 21, we get the beginning of an interesting image to describe the cluelessness of the false prophets. I didn't send the prophets, God says, but these people ran. I didn't speak to them, but those people prophesied. So far, pretty standard. God's saying, they are saying that they speak my words, but I never spoke to them at all. But then the next verse is interesting. If they had stood in my counsel... They'd have got my people to listen to my message. They would have turned them from their evil ways, from the evil of their deeds. If they had stood in my counsel. This isn't just a general term for listening to the wisdom of God, his counsel. It's a description of an ancient Near Eastern way of thinking about God. God is, of course, a king in ancient thinking. Now, we might have some objections to that analogy because kings are so often tyrants, and if we've seen Hamilton on Disney+, Plus, we know how arrogant and violent and unhinged King George was, and surely Yahweh isn't like that. But we do, of course, have to remember how figurative language works. God is powerful. God is above all other powers. God's not subject to anyone else. God deserves honor and praise. That is all true about God. Who else in that ancient world? Is that true of? A king. So God is described as being like a king. It is a metaphorical way of saying true things about God, but that doesn't mean that everything that is true about kings is also true about God. God sometimes uses metaphorical language to reveal true things about God's self, even when not every aspect of the image applies to God. And here we have an example of that. I am like a king, God says, which means like any king, I have a council. Think like the presidential cabinet meeting here. Powerful and influential people advising the king on the important issues of the day. That is what's being referred to here. That's the image. It's what's pictured in passages also like Isaiah 6, where Isaiah has a vision wherein God calls out, Whom shall we send and who shall go out for us? And Isaiah speaks up and says, Here I am, send me. God, in Isaiah 6, is sitting in God's council chambers, asking for the advice of the council. Who will speak this message to my people? 
We also see this in the book of Job, chapter 1, where it says, And one day the sons of God came to stand in attendance before Yahweh, in God's counsel, that is, and the adversary too came among them. And Yahweh said to the adversary, From where do you come? And then the adversary goes on to say that Job only follows God because his life is going well, and what would happen if bad things were to happen to Job? God is sitting in this passage like a king with the council, and someone, the adversary, enters with a request for the king, and God listens to it. That's the setup for the book of Job. It's also picturing this king's council idea. To what degree is this all literal, and to what degree is it figurative language that says something true about God in a way that the people of ancient Israel would understand? Well, that's a discussion for another day. What we can say is that in some sense, God has a council, which meets regularly, and which the false prophets have most definitely not been invited to attend. And so how on earth would they know what the word of God is for the people of Israel? They haven't sat at the council. They haven't listened to God's plans or the reasons for those plans. They don't have any special insight into what God is thinking or hoping or deciding. On a related note, John Goldengay in his commentary, while talking about this divine council idea, says that he sometimes thinks of prayer in this way. Prayer is our way of taking a seat at the divine council. We can speak up with our petition for the king. We can give advice. We can, and probably should, listen to what else is being said as the council deliberates about matters. And sometimes our arguments will win the day. And sometimes God will decide against us. Golden Gay says, It's a useful image for understanding what we're doing when we pray. We are not merely in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with God, but instead we're taking part in a meeting God is chairing. The image helps us see why prayer sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. The meeting will sometimes be able to heed our urgings, but sometimes we'll have reason to make a different decision from the one we want. But if we don't speak, the decision we want certainly won't get made. I thought that was a helpful image and one that actually does pop up fairly regularly in the Bible if we are looking for it. In any event, the false prophets have definitely not been in the meeting. They are just speaking their own words. Later in the chapter, they're accused of just bringing empty dreams, which are like straw that gets thrown away, and not the actual word of God, which is like the grain that nourishes. Dreams can be used by God and are in some parts of the Bible, of course, but these prophets are substituting their dreams for actual time spent in the presence of God's counsel. And this actually gets to what can sometimes be a misunderstanding on our part of what the job of a prophet is in the first place. The job of a prophet is not to make predictions about the future for their own sake. Those might be a part of the message. Often they aren't. That's not the point. The job of a prophet is to bring the messages of Yahweh to the people. The whole job is to sit in the cabinet meetings, to hear what's being said there, and then bring it to the people so that they can hear the message. Usually, and we saw Jeremiah saying this in the sermon this weekend, the message is one of repentance and change, of, hey, you're going down the wrong path, and you might not have noticed, but God certainly has, and this is what God has to say about that. The words of the prophet are to bring about change among the people of God so that they more closely align with God's dream for them, and to help the people more fully trust in God. And along with that is the prophet's other job, to sit in the cabinet meetings and bring the needs of the people to the council, to pray on behalf of the people. This is why it's so striking that God forbids Jeremiah to pray at certain points in this book. God is effecti effectively saying, it's too late for all that. 
Save your breath. At this meeting, you should just listen and not speak. In verse 23, after the mention of the divine council, there is a series of rhetorical questions that are a bit tricky to understand. It says this, Am I a God nearby, Yahweh's words, and not a God far away? If a man hides in a hiding place, will I not see him, Yahweh's words? Don't I fill the heavens and the earth, Yahweh's words? This is one of those verses in the Bible that Bible scholars get really geeked out about because it's one of the few places that anything approaching a systematic theology lesson appears in the Bible. God is both imminent and transcendent. One of the particularly interesting things here is that in the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, the versions that many translations use, this first question is, as we said here, am I a God nearby and not a God far away? To which the answer is clearly, no, you're not just nearby, you are also far away. But in the earliest Greek versions of the Old Testament, which is sometimes called the Septuagint, which is the version of the Old Testament that most of the people we see in the New Testament had access to, Jesus and Paul and all the rest, and is often older than the Hebrew manuscripts that we have available to us, that first question is different in just a really minor way in the original text, but it's a really minor way that completely changes the end result. Instead of, am I a God nearby? It reads, I am a God nearby and not a God far away. It is a statement instead of a rhetorical question, which then completely inverts the meaning. Again, most scholars use the Hebrew texts here, especially because they fit much better with the other two questions that speak of God filling the heavens and seeing all the earth. But it's just interesting that these two versions of the same book, Jeremiah, the Hebrew and the Greek, on the whole have pretty minor differences between them. But sometimes those minor differences can actually add up to something fairly big. In this case, we would say that God is, of course, both nearby and far away. But the point here is that God cannot be confined to the temple, to the messages of the false prophets, that God cannot be duped because God can see all things. God is not just near, God is also far away. In this context, it's a message of fear. I am near, I am far, you cannot escape my presence. But of course, in other contexts, that same identical message is used as one of comfort and hope. I am near. I am far, you cannot escape my presence. The determining factor of whether that's a message of fear or one of comfort is the person, the people, whether they have anything to fear from God, whether they are walking on the path towards God or the path towards death. And then one last play on words in this chapter. And we know that Jeremiah loves a good play on words. The word for a prophetic message in Hebrew is Masah. The word for a burden that you carry is Masah. And in verses 33 and what follows, God plays with this in a way that just doesn't come through in most of our translations. It says this, When this people, or the prophet, or priest, ask you, What is Yahweh's Massah? Message. You're to say to them, You are the Massah. Burden. And I'll discard you. Yahweh's words. As for the prophet and the priest and the people that say, Yahweh's Massah. Message. I'll deal with that person and his household. You're to say this, each to his neighbor, each to his brother. What has Yahweh answered, or what has Yahweh spoken? But don't make mention of Yahweh's Massah, message, anymore, because the Massah, burden, will belong to the person with his Massah, message. And it goes on like that for a few more verses. The message of Yahweh becomes a burden to Jeremiah. 
and he must speak it. The false prophets claim to have the message of Yahweh, but the false message will become a burden around their necks because they falsified Yahweh's words. And they are themselves a burden to God whose true message can't shout over the false ones out there. It's an interesting way that God plays with the same word to mean several different things in these verses. But I think that's about enough from chapter 23. We'll be continuing next week on the same topic of false prophets from chapters 26 to 28 before doubling back on chapters 24 and 25 the following week because they actually thematically go really well with chapter 29. So on the backdrop, it's chapter 23 this week, chapters 26 to 28 next week, and then 24, 25, and 29 the week after that, just in case you're keeping track at home. Thanks for joining me this week on The Backdrop. We will have some reflection and discussion questions for this podcast in the show notes on our website, PomonaValleyChurch.org, where you can also find a link to Zoom worship on Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time. We would love to see you there, and we hope you all have a great week. Until next time, bye. Bye.